Hello and welcome to another episode of Pod Like a Hole presents a space podity, a deep dive into David Bowie's discography with three guys in their late 30s talking about an artist who had his heyday well before our time, but thankfully was able to produce great work um, up until his final days. Tonight, or today, or this morning, whichever time you plan on listening to this recording, uh, we will be discussing David Bowie's album from 1999, Hours. It was released in the fall of 1999 when we were all out of high school, ready to start our college lives and uh, start our fantastic journey into the great wide open. This is Mark. I am one of your hosts. Um, I'm always joined with my other cohorts, co-hosts, co-creators, co-conspirators of Stephen Earl and Eric Monroe Anderson. And uh, this particular intro, you're not going to hear them say hello and have their cute little catchphrase of the week because I am actually re-recording this intro after the fact. You see, we have this this platform uh, called Ringer, and I'm going to put them on blast right now. Um, so during quarantine, obviously, the three of us have been responsible, not going over to any of our each other's homes, and we've been doing it remotely. But this practice didn't uh, occur just because of the quarantine. This happened before any of that because we were able to push content out a hell of a lot faster by not having to deal with the logistics of whose house we should go to and whose wives we were going to disturb and what time the kids were going to get to bed and this and that. So we've been doing this through uh, a souped-up teleconference, if you will, pre-Zoom era. Um, We've flapped around on two different platforms with varying results. Anyhow, Ringer let us down because uh, we hit record, and for the first, like, maybe 15 minutes, it was lost to the ether um, with uh, doing some sort of troubleshooting. So this intro um, is is a Band-Aid, if you will. It was probably recorded the same week that you're hearing this episode. Anyhow, I hope that uh, you will enjoy our conversation, as it's probably already in progress. Uh, Eric was kind enough to piece this shit show clusterfuck of a episode together. So tip of the cap to him. Um, As TV Guide would say, cheers to Eric, jeers to Ringer. Cheers and jeers. So with that, let's go ahead and get into the meetup of the episode. And uh, I'm not going to do a Bill Simmons where we're going to first hear from our friends at Pearl Jam. But uh, let's hear a little bit from our friend over at David Bowie. Hey, Eric here. Just letting you know we are dropping you right into the middle of a conversation. We're 
skipping over the history lesson of 1999, since we already did that in our five-year gap episode, and we're just talking about the movies of 1999 because it was a fantastic year of movies. So uh, just buckle up because we're already mid-conversation. Uh, this also gave us The Iron Giant and Talented Mr. Ripley, uh, two movies I, I, I uh, really enjoy to this day. The Sixth Sense. Eight millimeter. Blair, Blair Witch. Oh, Blair, Blair Witch. Yeah, nineteen ninety nine. I really enjoyed seeing the Blair Witch in the theater and that whole phenomenon. That was oh, yeah. it was an experience. Oh yeah. I, I know. It I, gives I, me chills thinking about that last part all I, the time. I know yeah. I've mentioned it before, but I'd seen Blair Witch once in the theater, and and then I went camping immediately after and scared the shit out of myself, and then uh, and then I saw it again. I, we were at a family kind of beach house down in Capistrano. And I took my cousins and they were all into it. And then right at that scary part at the end, an earthquake actually hit. And uh, my cousin thought that the the theater was like playing playing a joke, like a smell matic joke on us. Like, and he tried, he tried to fight the usher. It was, it, <laughs> it was insane. Oh, so. a couple of, so tying it into the themes of our last episode, Go came out that year, that, that rave movie. Oh, sure. And, sure. And I did go. I went and saw that at the Harding, the, the budget theater in Roseville, California. Remember that one, Mark? Oh, yeah. It, it, oh, I, I can't. It was like two screens. You walk into a room and all of a sudden you're in the theater. It was ri- ridiculous. Yeah. I saw one movie there. I saw that uh, movie go at the Birdcage Theater. Ah, uh, the Birdcage. And that was also is like the $1.50 theater. Birdcage was a fun experience as far as dollar theaters go. It was always a good time. Uh, being John mm-hmm. Malkovich, that's a good one. Oh yeah, that's good. That's good. Man on the Moon, that's all right for a biopic. It's all right. Sure. Office Space. It's the second time I thought about Stephen Root today. I was watching that uh new Perry Mason show on HBO, and Stephen Root and John Lithgow were yelling at each other. That's that's good TV right there. It's all you, it's all you want in life. That's perfect. It's great. Uh, <laughs> a movie that we all we all liked it when it first came out, but we all grew up. The Boondock Saints. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> there was a firefight. <laughs> if you could just edit down to the Willem Dafoe scenes, uh, you could sit through that movie. <laughs> uh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So we all agree our favorite movie from that year is Magnolia. Good for us. That's good. Yeah. Good, good Magnolia, soundtrack, man. That's... Good soundtrack, that Magnolia. Recently, the, the AV Club did a deep dive into the soundtrack of Magnolia, and it's, uh, it holds up. So okay. Amy Mann and Super Tramp. Yeah, that's all. You, those, the, that's the whole spectrum of music right there. Yep. <laughs> so, uh, what was going on with David Bowie in 1999? All right. Well, it had been two years uh, since one outside came out, and Bowie was still on his BowieNet website promoting. Uh, the second part in the Nathan Adler trilogy was going to be called Two Contamination. And he kept saying it was coming out and claimed that all the stuff he was doing with Reeves to record for it was going to be for contamination. And maybe some of it was, as we'll talk about when we get into some of the bonus tracks from this album. Uh, But Contamination never came out. Instead, they got distracted by a video game called... Steven, I'll let you go ahead and take the reins on this. On this part. Omicron. Omicron. The Nomad the Soul. Nomad soul. 
Oh man. Oh, you want me to talk oh, about the video game? Okay. <laughs> Every time. I just wanted me to do my patented Omicron. The Nomad It's kind of my George Takai impression with a little bit of Bowie mixed in. Um, <laughs> yeah, so Omicron, the Nomad Soul, came out around this time and it, it kind of consumed Reeves and David for a while doing the soundtrack. Correct, Eric? Oh yeah, I mean they they've recorded like 30 instrumental songs and then uh, mixed in with some actual songs for the soundtrack. And they were they were in the game. Um, yeah, uh, Omicron was a uh, came out in 1999. It was by the same guys that made Tomb Raider. It was for the Dreamcast. Did you guys ever uh, I know Eric, you both didn't own a Dreamcast. For some reason I I know your console histories. Probably because I lived with no. Mark for years. Um, <laughs> yeah. Did you ever play any Dreamcast games? Yes. Just in, like, uh, I think our mutual friend Seth had a Dreamcast, of didn't he? he? Did. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, the Dreamcast was Sega's, Sega's last system, I believe. They haven't, they haven't made any systems since. Um, I should fact check that, but I'm damn sure the Dreamcast was the last one. They went directly after that. They just software only. Because the Saturn was right before the PlayStation. And then the Dreamcast was right that's before right. the PlayStation 2. And that's kind of where Sega, Sega kind of always was in the middle. They were ahead of the pack, but they weren't as advanced as then, you know, the Xboxes and the PS2s that came out. And uh, this was their last, their last go-round with video game consoles. Uh, David Bowie lent his voice to the game. Him and Reeves and uh, Galen Dorsey and Iman had bit parts in the game. Um, there's a lot of David Bowie talking in this game. You like pull him up on a computer screen and he'll say, you've done it again. This sector of the city. Well, it's safe now. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. He's kind of driving the plot. Uh, he, he's front and center on the, uh, 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 on the cover of the game. And the tagline was, who will you be after you die? And it had a, a very big Buddhist element, which, you know, scratches some of what uh, itches some of what David Bowie needs to scratch. And the premise of the game is Omicron is you, the player. Uh, you're not in the game. You're controlling these souls jumping body to body. So Omicron, the nomad soul, is you. And uh, it's it, it's of the time. It's a three dimensional game where you see your character from a you know behind behind the back, and it's an open world environments from that era. So it's kind of like early Grand Theft Auto 3 Tony Hawk graphics that are very blocky. Uh, I've played it for like three minutes and I've watched all I can stand on YouTube. It was probably like a, a C plus game for the time, maybe a B minus. Didn't light the world on fire, but it was uh, fairly exciting compared to out to ours, which is the album that it shares some of the music with. Some scraps of things made for Omicron became songs on ours. Songs on ours remixed can be found in Omicron. And at the end of the day, guys, I think the best thing about Omicron, Omicron, Omicron the Nomad, Nomad Soul, Nomad, Nomad, is the name Omicron. Omicron the Nomad Omicron, Soul Nomad, is very Nomad, <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> so there, you know, David Bowie was bound bound to do this. Uh, you know, Bowie Net, um, other technology things he was always interested in 
having people, you know, he did an internet contest to name one or to do the lyrics from one of his songs. He was a, he was always into the future and what comes next. So having him be part of a video game, especially in the era of advanced video games where you can start to have voices and, and personalities shoved into a game makes complete sense. Omicron. Omicron. I have a question for both of you because I didn't uh, spend the time researching, but how successful was Bowie Net? Um, I don't think we've actually given Bowie Net a really full day in court and talk about like what the hell it was. I think we dabbled a little, little bit into that when we talked about Earthling. It was, uh, but- yeah, it was, uh, it was like America Online. If you remember before, you would get these little demo discs and you put them in and you'd get a little song and dance and you'd have to subscribe to a plan or something. Well, you had to do that with BowieNet. You, you would get a disc and it would have a, some new song on it. Turns out one of the songs they used is that, that deleted song from Earthling Fun. They used that for a while. And then uh, you'd have to buy a subscription, which was apparently very reasonable. It was, you know, just a couple bucks a month or whatever. And yeah, uh, it was ex- Bo- Bowie was said, it Bo- Bowie, like right before internet service providers now, I mean, like back then they mixed your access to the internet with your platform of the internet, if that makes sense. Um, like you were buying Netscape and also Netscape would kind of be bundled with whatever your subscription plan was to have access to the web. And Bowie net was a version of that. Like Eric said, the AOL thing and David Bowie, who famously also has a short attention span at that time, uh, right around the end of the nineties, he said, if he was 19 again, he would have skipped the music and gone right to the internet, which actually he kind of was ahead of his time because music decided to, skip everything physical and go right to the internet about a decade later. So he was like, he was onto something there. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah, but he was active. He had the nickname sailor and he would, uh, interact with people. And in fact, we'll get to a song on here that was completely written by a fan on Bowie net. So I think, uh, I think it was successful as far as it goes, as far as like, there was a fair amount of users, but I mean, this was the first of its kind. It was the first like paid subscription plan to an artist. I mean, it, uh, I mean, there was no, there was nothing else to compare it to. So and he, not, was, he, not on it. <laughs> he was, he was circling this throughout the nineties. I mean, uh, telling lies was sold online. The, the song off, uh, earthling, I think telling lies is off earthling. Wasn't it? Yes. Sure. Yeah, is. We just talked about. Lies. Yes. Yeah, that was that was released uh, about a year before Earthling, just on the internet, and uh, you know, back with black tie, white noise, they did the jump, uh, PC CD-ROM, and uh, you could get in there and you could watch you know videos and, and be in a little interactive Bowie land. So he he he, he was all having a his own attempt at an ISP makes a lot of sense. Right, and this was the first uh, fully online album to be sold. You could buy the, the MP3s. Yeah, how the how exciting one. is that? Like, you know, way of the future. You can finally download an entire album, and that's an exciting, that's an exciting idea. And the first album you can buy online is ours. So, you know, <laughs> it's like you put it on for the <laughs> first time, and you're like, is it, still, is it still downloading? I don't understand. This is moving very yeah. slow. Oh, yeah. it's just the music. Oh. <laughs> they guarantee you it took it. It took you a weekend to download that album, and and uh, probably twice as long <laughs> to get through it. Yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, this is this is not new. This opinion of ours, it's from when ours first came out. I've just always been baffled by just how just slow and low key it is. It's just really interesting. I, well, I, and I, I, it's you know, let, let's let's talk about the recording of ours. They're they're coming off Earthling, and him and Reeves get together and they decide the next album is going to be a true partnership between the two of them. Right. So yeah. who have His I decided full, full co uh, composition credit goes to Reeves. Yeah. Okay. We, we never got that with Mick Ronson. We never got that with uh, Carlos Alomar. We never got that even with Eno or Iggy pop or anybody. There's never full composition credits for an entire Bowie album until Reeves Gabrels who still confuses the three of us as to truly where he fits into the whole scheme of things. And this was his chance to really show us what he has. And we got ours. That's right. Yeah. They, <laughs> so yeah, they, they, they were really into the songs they were making for Omicron, the nomad soul. And uh, they wanted to, Eric, come on, Eric, Eric, come on. give it again, a little more bass. <laughs> <laughs> Omicron. Omicron. The Omicron. Omicron. Omicron, the nomad soul. There you go. That sounded uh, there it very is. menacing. Good job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and they liked the songs they were doing, and um, they decided to redo them for this. The, the album versions, as we'll talk about, very slightly to the Omicron versions. Uh, but then they liked what they were doing, and uh, a lot of it was uh, Reeves and Bowie in Reeves' apartment just doing home studio recordings and then expanding on it in a bigger studio. Um, there's not a lot more to it. I think they brought in their band for most, most of the songs when they expanded them out though. Um, oh, that does remind me. And maybe this, this influenced the whole mood, but most songs started as demos, the non, I'm sorry, the non Omicron songs started as demos when they were vacationing in Jamaica and uh i ah, guess you can so, you know, <laughs> yeah. they just, were going they were going they were trying to get back to that tonight sound uh, <laughs> that would have been an improvement um yeah. but yeah no david uh, mr bowie said that this didn't start out with a bunch of snippets of ideas like in in you know this wasn't cut up music or lyrics this was trying to write songs which for many of his albums things start with like a loop or an idea or just a, a you know a sketch that they of, of one part that they build off of. In this case, they kind of sat down and tried to write a song from start to finish. And after they did, they had enough demos in the, in the can and they recorded the album all the way through once and threw it away. And they recorded all the way through again, uh, again. And I have to wonder what did the first version of this whole thing sound like? Uh, you know, was it, was it, did they not fall asleep? And they decided, no, you need to doze off when you listen to this record. We're uh, trying to recreate. We're trying to recreate three Mai Tais on a hammock. Come on, man. Yeah. That's, that's, that's what yeah, you're and, and for that. Heavy. For that second recording, they brought, you know, the album was, you got David Bowie on every instrument, uh, specifically acoustic guitar, Reeves Gabrels, guitars and drum, drum loops. Uh, Mark, Mark Plotty playing the bass and synths. Mike Levesque, I think it's a new name on this list. He did some drums. Sterling Campbell, that is not a new name. He did some drums. Chris Haskett, rhythm guitar. Everett Bradley, 
uh, some percussion. Hey, this is a great name here. Marcus Salisbury, uh, bass on one song. And then Holly Palmer, who is not TLC, uh, is the backing vocals on Thursday's Child. Right. And how did this uh, how did this album uh, land with the critics, Mark? You know, surprisingly, uh, it was more right in the middle. Uh, like you got your three point fives uh, out of five. Um, I, I mean, it wasn't actually scathing reviews by any means, which is kind of surprising. Um, Alternative Press even gave it like a four out of five. Uh, Q, four out of five. Rolling Stone, four out of five. And so it it is rather surprising, but um, maybe it's just over the passage of time that we all kind of look at this album like, what was going on here? Well, Um, it was was 1999 and, you know, it was being compared to your Kid Rock. The Age of Dido. Your Kid Rocks and your Limp Biscuits, and yeah, Dido if you're lucky. Uh, yeah, it was a rough year for popular. Yeah, music. you know, if I'm if I'm if I'm if I'm bopping around the radio and it's either this or Everclear, I'm going to go with this. Um, <laughs> and David Bowie said, you know, he was saying that a lot. Of, he was in a reflective mood. Uh, he was trying to you know, a lot of this. He really was seeming to get back to a version of some of those earlier albums that were acoustic based. Folk based. That's definitely here. He definitely was going for that. He said he listened to his whole back catalog for a year before he recorded this. And if you were to do that and then this is what you land on, I feel like he skipped all his good albums. <laughs> and it, yeah, it's, it's like really he listened. He, he listened to his first two albums and then skipped to Black Tie White it, Noise. It was it was <laughs> 365 days of song for Hermione on repeat. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. So I don't know. He really it, it's interesting. That this is what they come up with when you've got Reeves Gabrels, who just the more I read what the guy had to say, he just thinks he was king shit of fuck mountain as far <laughs> as being progressive and innovative and everything, you know, earthling and and outside and everything that worked was because of him. And a lot of it was tracks that were supposed to be on his solo records, but they he let David have them and. When he left the band, he left the band because he didn't want David to kick him out. Oh, no yeah. one ever leaves David Bowie. He, he, you know, he didn't get fired. He quit. Now, good for him. Have you guys I, listened I, to his solo work? Oh, God, we're going to talk. <laughs> no. about We're going to talk about Jewel at the end of this yeah. discussion. But, let, uh, let me just say that his music doesn't back up his mouth. If you ask me, uh, all of a sudden, it's not going to fight the guy. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's just. That that's what they came up with. These these two, one man that totally was a forward thinking individual, and one that kept talking like he was a forward thinking individual, ended up with ours, which is just very strange to me. Maybe they were trying to be so counter uh, productive to what was in the zeitgeist at the time. This was forward thinking, um, or maybe maybe David Bowie just took his foot off the gas because he got really rich. Uh, I'm going to read this specifically. From the complete David Bowie guide, because uh, despite my jokes earlier that made accountants laugh, hopefully this is all above my head. So anyhow, this is what's going on with David Bowie's finances at the time. Despite Bowie's uh, rejection of the commercial mainstream in the mid 90s, by the time the Earthling tour came to an end, his personal fortune had reached a new peak. During 1997, the papers were full of stories about his asset flotation referred to by the tabloids as Bowie Bonds. 
The scheme involved David staking the royalties in his back catalog as security against a loan of $55 million to be repaid over an agreed period after which the royalty rights would revert back to him. And they did that in September 2007. Prudential Securities purchased all the Bowie bonds on the opening day of sale. It was the first such deal struck by a rock musician, establishing a precedent followed by artists such as Elton John. Also in 1997, Bowie resold his back catalog to EMI for $28.5 million, paving the way for yet another reissue program, which will begin with AMI's best of CDs before moving on to the albums proper in the autumn of 1999. Bowie spent some of his newfound funds buying out a share of the publishing rights retained by his former manager, Tony DeFreeze. Other investments meant that by the end of the 1990s, he, had routinely, he was routinely appearing in the upper reaches of speculative lists of the entertainment industry's wealthiest figures. So somehow, $55 million that was repaid to him in 2007, by 2007, and then, 20, and then he just sold his back catalog for $28.5 million. So he's making close to $80 million here over the period of the next 10 years. And maybe he just decided he didn't need to be forward thinking anymore. You know, he had nothing to lose. He could do whatever he wants. It also might be why he, after this, is not nearly as prolific after reality. Um, I might be sounding a little cynical there, but there's a correlation somewhere between a whole shit ton of money and his most boring album coming out at the same time. There has to be. Sure. Uh, I think you bring up a money makes point. you boring. Is that what you're saying? That's your thesis. <laughs> it doesn't keep you hungry. You know, that's you true. Know? You got to stay hungry, Mark. It's true. Uh, it's the, true. Uh, I think there, you bring up a good point about Reeves and he is, his foot was itching, itching towards the door at this point. Um, we'll talk about that a little bit more. Uh, the uh, final nail in the coffin happened in the, in the little promotional tour after this album came out. Um, but yeah, he was on his way. And, and I, it, what, what would also probably hurt is apparently Bowie kept dangling over Reeves head that he was going to be, he was looking forward to another Tony Visconti album that he was going to make. And, uh, and, and, and maybe it was going to be pinups too. And Tony Visconti was going to, was going to produce it and, uh, kept kind of talking about, he was going to, he was, he was going to be reuniting with Tony Visconti soon. And I don't know if there was any truth to that. As far as I knew, they, Tony and Bowie didn't talk until uh, right before Heathen came out. So no, right this is when they were. this is when they started talking again. This yeah. this is when they started talking again, and that led to Heathen. But yeah. I, I I definitely read the same thing. This is around when when the two of them set aside whatever uh, you know. Well, <laughs> come on, Eric. We've all heard the tapes. We all know what went down. I know. And that's uh, true. We yeah, should play, well, they, we should play they, a little bit of those. Yeah, they're they're yeah. they're they're like the Nixon tapes. Well, yeah, actually, this this uh, here's th- this one was uh, you know interesting of the time. I bought this off Craigslist. Actually, uh, our refrigerator was going dead, and well, my wife is pregnant. And so here's what happens when your wife is pregnant: is that everything's hotter, and it's getting hot right now. So that means the AC has to run all the time, no matter what your PG&E bill looks like. And also, if your refrigerator is even appearing to maybe only have maybe six months left in its lifespan, you buy a new fridge now. And uh, we bought a new fridge from a big box store. But of course, me being the cheap ass I am, I started out on Craigslist. And uh, you wouldn't you wouldn't believe the kind of refrigerators that people try to sell you that uh, they come to ask you to take a look at when they live in Pollock Pines, California. 
very interesting enough up in Pollock Pines. There are also uh, there's a trailer park in Pollock Pines. And I don't know how this community started, but it seems to be where people that used to be in bands from the late 90s and early aughts go if they never quite made it big, but we've all heard about them. There's a guy from Eve Six there. There's uh, one of the Venga boys lives there. And the guy that responded to my my fridge inquiry was the keyboard player or guitar player for Orgy. So I go up to Pollock Pines and I'm looking at this guy's fridge and it's not I'm not buying his fridge. But, you know, I'm like, Orgy, huh? You know, uh, uh, we went and saw you at the uh, the first uh, Family Values tour with Romstein. And I proceeded to talk about Romstein for half an hour. Eventually, I told him I have a podcast. He asked to be on the podcast. I told him I'd get back to him. But uh, he said the reason he wanted to be on it is because he's a huge Tony Visconti guy. Orgy actually almost had an album produced by Tony Visconti. And Tony got too distracted with working with Bowie again. So shot him down. But he has a uh, little little mini disc, little mini disc. And he gave it to me because he was so happy that I, I, I spent time to talk to him about his glory days. Well, you see, David, I really think that we need uh, knock, to... Knock, knock. Hey, uh, <laughs> is that a, a cat dying in here? Or oh, No, no, no. It's just Reeves uh, talking and playing guitar at the same time. I can't tell the difference between the screeches. Hey, uh, thanks, Dave, for inviting me by. Uh, I heard you're working on a new album. I mean, it's been so long since we've been in the studio together. I, what, what's this one called? Hours? I mean, tell me about it. Well, Tony, and uh, thank you, yes, uh, we had a great time with Placebo, didn't we? Bit, I will admit, and I am channeling that righteous creation into my new album, a meditation on getting very old and going to bed that I like to call ours. Hey, uh, I gotta ask, I mean, getting very old, I mean, we're... I mean, you know, hey, we're no spring chickens, but, you know, we're, we're, we're still in our 40s, 50s. I mean, you know, we're not croaking, and I feel like some of these songs are, you know, I, I get it. It's artistic, man. You are a genius, and you capture the feeling of croaking, that, that light, that spark of life dimming. I mean, you played some tracks for me, buddy, and I gotta say, it's a nap time for old Tony there. I, I gotta admit, a little boring. You know, could you maybe you got a, you got you got anything fun in there? You got you got anything to make a, make me tap my dancing shoes? Uh, Tony, now this is why I'm I'm working with Reeves because of this very thing. I invited you down here not to try and you know just take things over. You've like you've been trying to do for 20 years now, ever since Scary Monsters. You've been trying to take things over, and it happened again. I tell you, there's Tony. The chances of us doing at one, two, three, four records after hours, very slim. You know, I am a futurist, Tony, and let's just be real here. There's no way after the turn of the century that I might find some sense of respectability and make some great albums with you. I just called you down here so I can show you what I'm doing and through my house slowly looking at myself in the mirror. When I think of maturity, I think of making breakfast, Tony. Maybe I'm making breakfast. 
It's mature, Tony. It's yeah. I guess I wouldn't understand that. I'm just a freewheeling kid, you know. Hey, I just, I came here on my skateboard for one. Um, except it's this cool skateboard that has this handlebar on it. So it's I guess it's a scooter. Um, it's these brand new things called Razor scooters. You heard about these things? Ah, yes. Awesome. Well, I I have heard of the Razor scooters because I am typically on the cutting edge. I get it. I'll, I'll let you do your thing. But hey, listen. I, you know, maybe after you finish outside two. And three, as you promised, then maybe you'll be ready to get back to working with me? Uh, yes. Um, yes, about that. Uh, I promise you, Tony, the reason you haven't heard Outside 2 and 3 is because the world isn't ready for them. The technology is not there. I, uh, I, you know, it's, it's, they'll happen. Godspeed on the rest of this. Uh, why don't you go, when you're done with this, why don't you go, uh, first of all, ditch that Reeves guy. I, I, I mean, I, I can tell he's got one foot out the door already. Spin a little Pixies and then call me because I got, I, I, I can tell you, uh, after hours, you become a heathen. <laughs> if you get my drift. Give me a call. Uh, yes. Uh, it's never going to happen. But all right. It's nice for... It's, it, a man can dream. I will, I will let you dream. It's as if I was dreaming of my life. That's that poetic, Dave. Ah, Dave? Dave? Ah, it's like you went to sleep. This album has that effect on people. In the walk was long, but uh, it was worth it. It was like watching all three Lord of the Rings movies right there. <laughs> yeah, which I, which I just did recently, and boy, that was... You know, I used to rewatch the Uncut Trilogy once a year, and I could do it in a day. You, you guys try doing that with a kid. You tell me how long it takes you. It took me a, it took me a week and a day. By the time I finally finished that third one, it was like three in the morning and whatever day that was. It was still very fulfilling, <laughs> much more fulfilling than the album hours, which I guess we should start talking about. Let's uh, let's do it. Let's let's do it. Um, I have no experience with this album. This is my first time listening to it. I think I had heard a couple songs randomly on like a my phone on shuffle, but I have never sat down with this before. So I was not buying it in 1999, and I had not listened to it till now. Mark, how about you? Um, this was not one of the ones that I sought out. Um, I, I think I heard Thursday's Child inside the record store because I started that year thinking, okay, uh, some Bowie, and um, I just didn't pay this mind any attention whatsoever. And then I think when me and you started really – uh, getting into David Bowie, I think you were the one like, yeah, I don't think you need to bother with that one. Um, and then I eventually bought it just to kind of catch them all. And once I did, I probably listened to it once all the way through and never listened to it again until in preparation for this episode. Yeah, I, uh, I bought it upon release. That summer, I hung out with our old buddy, Jason. Hello, well, may he rest in power. And I very I remember very vividly seeing the video for Thursday's Child so many times on M2 and just being flabbergasted by this artist that uh, over the last two years, we as teenagers all got into various parts of his discography. Right. Um, mainly the Ziggy stuff and mainly the stuff tied to I'm Afraid of Americans and some outside, you know. I was just like, yeah, this guy was kind of like the godfather of all the music we liked. And this is what he's putting out now. Interesting. This is what happens when you get old, I guess. 
And, uh, you know, it, it, it makes me like heathen that much more because it was such a, uh, uh, I, I don't, I don't think he ever actually came out. Like Bowie doesn't dislike this album as much as the fans do because David Bowie's dead and he can't dislike anything. <laughs> but even at the time, he never seemed to disparage it, um, openly. But I feel that getting back with Visconti and making Heathen, which was a return to form on a few levels, kind of speaks, like right after this, speaks to just totally pivoting into a better direction. Um, so yeah, it was boring boring then, it's boring now, I don't listen to it often. And yeah, I just uh, baffled baffled by how you could listen to your whole, art, your whole catalog for a year and this is what you, you, you push out into the world. Well, let's see if our yeah. opinions change now that we've listened to it in uh, our late 30s. First track, Thursday's Child. Singing my past let it go. Thursday's child. Thursday's child. Oh boy. You know, when they talk about uh, your perfect album sequencing, they weren't talking about this album because you immediately put the record on and you just are just lulled into the dulcet tones of something that sounds like Muzak in a elevator going to the 45th floor and. Yeah, well, but that let's let's what is that? Let's really quick here. Let's let's be fair. Instead of just writing it off as that, let's like I mean, and, and also this will serve the purpose of trying to connect the musical sound to okay. the actual. We're gonna, we're... Well, hold on a second here. Like like Reeves Gabriels, we could say a lot of things about him, but one thing was he was part of a very distinctive part of Bowie's music. And at least love him or hate him, outside and Earthling were distinctive and interesting. And then this came out. And I'm trying to figure out the the thread. Uh, Thursday's Child is Bowie singing. It's very clean, very sanitized. There's acoustic guitar strumming. And, um, you know, drums and bass do their thing. You get a very husky backing vocalist at some point. Um, and then you have this layer of string synthesizer but it sounds like midi it sounds like something i could do on garage band you know 15 years yes. 15 years ago and and what you're taking what you're what you're doing is you're putting it nicely because you don't want the listeners to think we're just going to slam every song like we're a morning zoo crew and we're not but that's that <laughs> that that instrumentation you just got to is what this song opens with and it just is so drowsy dull and it sounds like the music that, you know, might be uh, it belongs in 1978. Uh, and you're looking at Ron Burgundy when you hear it. <laughs> not, not good. It's it's uh, and, and sadly, that is if there's one thing that's consistent about this album, it's that the the 
the palette of sounds is that is that it's acoustic guitar and it's this nitty synth and that that is a constant you will hear that in every song and no song is allowed to be faster than like 85 beats per minute it's it's every yeah, song the, is very sleepy very slow paced there's a couple there's a couple that try to pick up the pace but then eh, we'll get to them um but i think i think uh, this, the sanitized sound is is my gripe with this album because you know hey in a way, in a different universe, some of these songs could sound like granddaddy songs. Uh, you know, lo-fi, acoustic guitar, drums, and MIDI synth can actually work and, and have some depth and, and, and something interesting to it. But it's so sanitized. Everything sounds... The guitar is, you know, Reeves' uh, pinwheel guitar, which is usually, uh, uh, love it or hate it, a, a centerpiece on an album, could have been done on a, on a keyboard on this on this album it's it's uh it's everything sounds very very like it's been run through the dishwasher yeah it's uh the precedent is set here and and that that layer of production does not go away i think it was a, a misstep to have this to be the uh opening single the opening track and the first single off the album uh, if you're going to have a, a shot across the bow, you want it to leave a mark, not miss the ship entirely and just splash into the ocean way off over there. It's just uh, it just it's very, you don't not memorable at all. I don't think um, we've had a discussion that I disagree with you, too, that I, I believe that it would have been actually uh, it would have benefited this song if they could have got TLC to do the backup vocals, which is what Bowie was trying to do. And he got shot down by Reeves Reeves, who well, seems to just be petulant in, in his default mode said like, you know, we, we've just, we've been the cutting edge. We've got the audience we want. And you want to have a hip hop R and B type singer on a song with you. Come on, man. And so they got someone named Holly Palmer to do the backup vocals. I think TLC uh, would have brought maybe some crossover appeal here, which could have been good. And also, I think the song Waterfalls is better than any song on this album. So <laughs> fair. Who's not to have TLC on the record? Um, uh, the album artwork already looked like late 90s R&B album artwork. So. And let's talk about that album artwork for a minute. So it's got it's got Bowie holding Bowie, which is kind of the uh, Thursday's Child video. The Thursday's Child video is doing that motif that we've talked about before that Bowie's done maybe 10 times by the time he died, which is I'm David Bowie and I've had all these personas. Let's have them interact with each other. Uh, in this case, they didn't get Tilda Swinton to play one of him, which was a mistake. And in the video, it's him kind of moving from a bathroom to another room. And there's a young Bowie and an old Bowie. The album covers the young Bowie cradling the old Bowie. It's a little bit of the... Uh, Oh, what will that that famous painting that's been done a billion times, which is like a religious painting of maybe it's uh, the Madonna holding Jesus, I think. Um, I might be mixing the religious characters, well, but it's definitely that same. It's old Bowie because it's Bowie. It's current Bowie. It's 99 Bowie looking like young Bowie holding uh, the dead uh, Uncle Raver. <laughs> as push yes. pushing ahead the dame calls his earthling character uncle rave 
which I appreciate very much. And uh, yeah, yeah I, and it's, <laughs> a, it's a religious pose. But to your point, Eric, the font says David Bowie. And I think they're, it's like old English kind of in bad Photoshop. And then the, the, the O and Bowie encapsulates the two characters. And then if you look up in the right hand corner, there's a barcode that also spells out Bowie hours. It's uh, there's a lot going on in that cover, which is interesting because it's still very boring to look at. Right. Right. Um, this song, this song is, uh, I mean, he did. Uh, and, and I will credit Bowie for this. He wanted to write every song as if anybody could have sung. It doesn't have to be him. Bowie, the superstar singing these songs. These, these could be songs sung by everyday Joes. And this particular song is apparently um, dedicated to Eartha Kitt, who, of course, was Catwoman in the Batman 60s show. She had an album called Thursday's Child. Um, and it's a reference to Velvet Underground, who uh, uh, in All Tomorrow's Parties, they talk about how uh, Thursday's a, a fool. And this song is basically like, I'm old now. I can handle anything now. Throw anything at me now. But it's, you know, I uh, the only thing I don't regret about my past was being a fool for you. That's what the song's about. Um, it's a it's a sweet little love song. Lyrics are really not bad, but he sings it as he does on every song on this album, like he's on too many quaaludes and he's always behind the beat. He's using one of his lower registers, which is fine. Um, the Pushing Ahead the Dame website uh, uh, hypothesizes that he this is a, a character for Bowie. This is the sad, the sad mime, the sad clown. And even though he sounds bored and asleep on every song, he, it's him playing a character. And he's kind of um, parroting uh, old aging rock stars. Um, that may or may not be true. That doesn't make me appreciate the album anymore if, if it's a character or if it's just where he's at at this time. But he's always about a half beat behind as he's singing, and his range is very much lower register only. Um, so that's that. Mark, what do you think about Thursday's Child? I'm right there with you. Um, it is rather odd that this is the opening song, and I always equate this entire album with this song. Um, I think we all do. I think maybe it's because we seemingly, whenever we try to maybe... Uh, dabble into this song or this album. We always just hit a brick wall with this. Um, because his singing is so incredibly boring. Um, it, it seems that he himself is so bored with it. Maybe having him be a character who's looking back on his life is kind of the intention. But musically, it's just so blasé. It's so boring. Um, I mean, one of the uh, critics when they were writing about this whole album as a whole, and I think it really encompasses this particular song, is that uh, so Ryan Schreiber of Pitchfork said that ours opts for a spacey but nonetheless adult contemporary sound that comes across with all the vitality and energy of a rotting log. And I think this whole the song just is perfectly encapsulates that sentiment. Um, and another writer, uh, said that it's a more highbrow version of sting and concluded, uh, that there's just a lack of urgency and it's just suggests that this whole confessional, uh, I guess gear that Bowie's thrown out there is just another 
Bowie style that he's just thrown out there for size. And I think it was also said that Bowie, you know, he um, is now past 50 and maybe he was trying to write an album that is more of what his contemporaries of that age were doing. So, and then you've got Reeves just kind of throwing an ego trip all over the place. I still disagree that putting TLC on this, I think it would have made it more hackneyed than what it needed to be. But I also, Steve's point, maybe if they brought something with a little bit of creative energy, maybe it could have been something um, rather than elevator music. Right. So it, it is one of those things that you just kind of often wonder what would have been like if maybe someone who had a little bit of, you know, vim and vinegar could have thrown into this song because it is really, it's five and a half minutes long. Um, I will have to admit the video does make me appreciate it a little bit more, but this song is definitely a, a snooze fest. tried to inject some vin and vinegar in the rock mix which showed up on the single um or it's on the expanded edition of the cd if you've heard it the rock mix is um there's an added layer of guitars over the synths kind of doubling the synth part and then part of the album is has been affected to give it like a metal tube sound um you know yes it does sound very adult contemporary i'm not a huge sting fan but you know how Bowie jokes about the eighties being his part of the second half being his Phil Collins phase. I would have stuck around for more, you know, maybe at least the bad Phil Collins music is interesting. And that is something that, you know, and there are parts in this album that are interesting, but I do not find them in this song. Right. Um, so it may, you know, it, it, maybe if he would have just, I don't know. So there, there's a way, why 92 music has its place in the world, unfortunately, and doesn't need to put you to sleep. I mean, that's hollow notes, his entire discography, but this song for whatever reason, it's just, uh, they, they really wanted to just veer into the, into the, the, the maudlin. Even it sounds maudlin to me. It just sounds so down. Sure. And I'm a sad bastard. I love sad bastard music. I have a black heart procession tattoo. Um, yeah, I, but, it's just they're sounding sad and they're sounding drowsy and this sounds drowsy. Yeah. Sad shouldn't be so boring or so clean. There should be a little grit to your sadness. Um, and uh, I this was one of the ones that Bowie would hang over Reeves head. I might save this for my next album with Tony Visconti. It was supposed to be a big epic with flutes and woodwinds. And maybe that would <laughs> maybe that would have been better. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure they talked about it. When they met that one time. Well, it's, in it's interesting because Tony even said that he said ours was a throwback to Bowie's early recordings. I think it's a very 90s sound. 
but his songwriting has returned to that more melodic sound with accessible lyrics. And uh, that's exactly what Tony Visconti said. Right. And I'll say this much. I do think that it's pretty much upward from here. I think this album starts at a low point. Well, so let's go well, to the hold, next track. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Uh, it did start. There was an uh, Omicron, the Nomad Omicron, Soul Omicron, the version. Nomad, um, I was really hoping, I had my fingers crossed, that I would like the video game versions more than the album versions just because, I don't know, maybe they can get more experimental or synthy or something. Uh, sound palette-wise, it's identical. It's just slower. <laughs> if anything, and that's by, it makes it worse. That's by design. Because Bowie said, you know, Reeves and I are working on this video game. And I am not just going to do industrial clang and bang music like the uh, excellent music in the game Doom. Uh, It's going to be something different and atmospheric. So that's what you're getting in Omicron. Right. Right. So sadly, you're not going to get sadly. You're you're, a fan uh, of the Omicron version. Your your hope of something that's more driving so you can, uh, you know, jump. You know, when I when I think of jumping a soul from body to body in a future Blade Runner land with uh, frame rates that I can barely make out what's going on. Yeah. I'm thinking guitars that are heavily processed. Bowie was not. Sure. Yeah. But yeah, next song is something in the air. Live with the best times. Live with the worst. Dance with you too long. Let's take what we can I know you're your head of mine We've raised for the last time A place of no return And there's something in the air All right, guys. Now... I am uh, I am not the Disney fan that Mark is, but I will say that this song gets top marks because they had Wally guest vocal on it. <laughs> Wally, yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, uh, I think sound sound palette wise, it's pretty much the same. There is a little bit more grit and i say that with quotes because steve is right the latter half of the song bowie's belting through a modulator and distortion pedal through his singing um the song itself is a song about a marriage that has died and uh, a couple that are splitting up you know your coat and hat are gone i can't look at that little empty shelf a ragged teddy bear it feels like we never had a chance um it's yeah, it's about a dead, uh, dead marriage. The husband is is reflecting as the wife is left. Um, once again, he's using the same vocal range, the low, sad, a little bit behind the beat. Um, this song does show up in Omicron, the Nomad Soul, as the as his band, Bowie's band, and Gail Ann Dorsey is one of the players in the game, and um, his band is the is called. Uh, the was the outside no not the outsiders the what's the last song on this here 
Sorry, the dreamers. The dreamers. dreamers. The dreamers. And they're playing this song in the video game. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'll, uh, you know, to his vocals on this song, I think David Bowie is a great vocalist, obviously. The chorus on this one, though, is rough. I really don't know if he was going again trying to portray loss or being tired or being old. But the the something in the air, it really is not one of his best moments. I uh, I'm trying to find good things to say about these songs, and it just jumped out at me. He sounds really tired. Is it by design? Maybe, but sometimes you got to throw those designs away and do something different. The uh, the chorus in this song is not a good vocalization moment for him. Yeah, uh, I agree. Um, musically, this song doesn't um, annoy me nearly as much, and actually I do give it some high marks for at least having some sort of semblance of a melody that could be catchy, but yeah. Well, that, 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 that guitar, that... It kind of Reeves has a couple of moments in this album where he tries to play like a, a cool guitar riff, and this one has one of them. Sure, but you, yeah, I one hundred percent. I one hundred percent agree with you that uh, there's something that Bowie's kind of pulling his punches a little bit on his vocals, and it, I don't know if that's again by design, if he's really trying to convey a certain, um, I don't know, attitude about uh, you know what the song's about. So, uh, this song was also featured in um, uh, American Psycho, had a remix. I, I do enjoy the remix a little bit more than the, uh, the original. Yeah, I think it was a also... A little bit more atmosphere. Yeah. And then it was also in Amer- uh, Memento. I think it was also featured in the film Memento as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, nothing really else to say about this song. Well, with that, let's move on to track three, Survive. Who said time is on my side? I've got ears and eyes and nothing in my life. But I'll survive your naked eyes. I'll survive. This track definitely to me is a total on purpose throwback to the uh, memories of a free festival era. What do you think, Eric? Yeah, I think, I, I, I think that's, that's fair. Um, I don't know if it goes as many places as free, free festival goes. Um, but it's, it's definitely like, uh, yeah. It's, 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 it's a, it's, it's a natural progression to the first song about, um, you know, how hard life is and surviving and coming out stronger and wiser. Um, but, uh, it's because of you, it's because of this love that you, that you prevail. Um, the positive, very positive song. Um, there's some fun throwbacks to the sixties music. There's a reference to the stones and the Beatles, um, but he's but he's hoping he, he there's a melancholy part too. He's he was hoping he would be something better like these references and 
And in the end, he's, you know, he's, he's a bit stifled. Um, I do like the synth horns that come up in the second <clears> verse. Um, but there is MIDI synths all over this thing. Uh, once again, so strange that they would come from outside and earthling that were at the very least, at least they were using top of the line synthesizer sounds. And there was just so many, like when you would download somebody's uh, MIDI version of, you know, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air theme song or something like that, <laughs> whatever was going around the internet in the nineties, it's, 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 uh, it's the cheapest sound. It's the a demo version on a Casio going on over all these songs. It's so strange. What a weird choice. I'll give, I'll give this song one thing. Reeves has a couple of guitar licks that I like. Um, he has a guitar tone in this album which sounds actually a lot like the guitar tone on some of the ballads on Chinese democracy, which is a plus in my book, but here I don't know if it always works. Interestingly enough though, I feel like this album actually showcases his natural guitar playing much more than uh, the last two records do. And I think it's still better than anything he does on tin machine because at least it's uh I don't know, trying to do more than just every song in Tim Machine sounds the same. Most of these songs sound the same, but I don't think it's because of Reeves Gabrels. Um, and I, I liked I like some of the guitar licks and survive, I guess. What sure. do you think, Mark? Yeah, it's uh, to Eric's point, you know, this is the part of the album where I, I am just scratching my head, like thinking, how did we get to this album so quickly as he's going through his kind of electronic um soundscape he all of a sudden just realized man i'm getting too old for that i need to like either be my age or act my age and it's just a total just slamming the brakes on kind of the momentum that he was having and um you know it it's just this particular song uh, it was a third single off the record um it's kind of an improvement over Thursday's child, but it's again, still painting with that same brush that is just making me check my watch and thinking how much more of this album do I have? Cause I mean, even though it does have its more dynamics and there is certainly moments where it's not like I'm gritting my teeth through this album. It seems to kind of just like blow past me without really any sort of thing. But I know that I'm like, man, of all the albums I could be listening to, I'm choosing to listen to this one right now. It just crosses my mind a little too often in this album, but this song for me is just, it. it's a dud. Again, it's just one of those things that maybe if I'm 65, I'll come back to it and be like, oh, now I get it. But for, for me in this age, I'm just still not, not digging it because of how strong Heathen is, uh, which is only two to three years removed from this one. It was just a real course correction, and maybe Tony Visconti's the secret sauce that it was lacking. But uh, you know, Earthling, we we talked about how disjointed that one is, and uneven, and kind of but lengthy. I, yeah, but they but they they clearly cared about those songs. You could they tell did. Bowie Bowie, did. Bowie could still uh, grab your attention with his vocals. They they there was there was some real intent. This just I don't know. Just feels like. Like we're lucky we got it and they were wrote it in between lunch and snack time on a Thursday afternoon. 
Yeah. I mean, I don't know if maybe to Steve's point earlier that the money had turned him soft and his attention was just like, do I really need to keep putting out albums anymore? You know, I don't know. It's just, I really do feel that there's just kind of a lack of interest on his part. Right. Um, There was one, uh, the uh, Marius DeVries did a few remixes for this album. This is the first one we've heard. Um, they're all very, very similar to the original. I do believe there's a little bit more depth to the pr- production. Yeah. Yeah, I do agree with you, Eric. I do. Yeah. I do. I, I think that remix by uh, Marius DeVries is actually a lot better. Yeah. It's, yeah. It, yeah it, it at least uh, expands the, scounds, the soundscape a little bit. It still feels like AM radio, but it's better production. And, and that'll come up a few more songs on here. But um, yeah, anyways, that those are worth uh, the single. The single had a uh, back to Bowie being ever the futurist. The single CD had a, a PC playable version of the video. Did either of you watch that video? No, I uh, I didn't. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, the video was uh, shot by a gentleman named Walter Stern, and it shows Bowie in his kitchen cooking breakfast. And throughout the song, everything starts to float. And then by the end of the song, everything isn't floating anymore, and they're back on the ground. So there you go. Walter Stern also did the... Uh, Thursday's child video and that's Bowie just brushing his teeth in the bathroom. So apparently they just shot this all in one day in the song. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Now we'll go to the kitchen. They did, they did actually, uh, this, this track did actually make some of the, uh, the cuts, uh, of the tours that followed this album. And I know Glastonbury doesn't have any hour songs on it. We'll talk about that in closing, but this song did end up in some set lists for the subsequent tours. So for whatever reason, I think they uh, they held it in a bit more regard than we do. All right, what's next? If I'm dreaming my life. If I'm Dreaming My Life might be my favorite song on the album. I It has three specific sections. It is seven minutes long, so thankfully it doesn't remain the same pace throughout it. And there are parts where it does sound like David's on Quaaludes again, but they intersperse it with parts that have a little bit more dynamics going on. And... There's even a section in the middle where it sounds like a Weezer song to me, which I think is pretty cool. There's a couple times on this album where I do think 
he definitely was trying to whenever he tries to rock it up on this album I think he's listening to 90s alternative rock But then there's a towards the end of the part you're talking about, um, the pushing ahead, the Dame at least website refers to it as the under the bridge parody. As far as Ah, I can see that guitar lick right there. Yep. I hear it. I totally hear it. I thought Weezer, I can hear the peppers either way. I like it and spot on with the peppers comparison. (laughs) And I think, I think a people imitating the chili peppers is actually better than the chili peppers in most cases. And the uh, the closing of the song has some good uh, Bowie oh, oh, vocalizations. I I think this song strives to be something more than we've heard in the album so far. I'm a pretty big fan of it. What do you What do you guys think, Mark? I I'll agree with Steve. I think this is probably the the best song off the record. Um, it's my personal favorite, um, even though it is. Uh, the longest song on the album, it, it never is boring. It, it definitely does have some dynamics that just were lacking in the uh, other tracks that we've got so far. Um, apparently, uh, you have a former Rollins band guitar player on here, Chris Haskett. He played rhythm guitar. Um, he definitely adds a little bit more punch um, to this track. Uh, it also just feels that there's a live band playing for once. Yes. Rather than everything That's feeling stitched definitely, together. Yeah, no, the, I, I, Mark, I totally agree with you. That live band feel from the start, it sounds like a live band's on there. There's an opening lick that just sounds like, oh, a band is playing this, not just guys in, a, in an apartment. Yeah, everything else just sounded like um, everything was overdubbed. You have Reeves coming in on uh, Tuesdays, and then David Bowie is coming in on Wednesdays to do his parts. Um, this one, the whole band is together and they're actually trying to lay some tracks down all at the same time. I mean, I'm sure that they used overdubs like nobody's business. I mean, come on, but it just feels more organic than everything else. Um, and, um, yeah, I think it's good. I mean, it's obviously doesn't hold a candle to some of his other long epics like station to station with the circle, but it is, it's definitely like a little brother to those songs. So, uh, yeah. I like this one too. Weirdly, it's not it's not my favorite on the album, but um, it is the first one that that caught my attention, and one of the only mm-hmm. songs that catches my exactly. catches my attention because yeah, at some point they're like, oh wait, we can go faster than eighty beats per minute. We can we can hit the bass drum a few times and rock play a rock guitar and uh, Bowie's lyrics are um, there. Uh, was she ever there? Was she ever? Was it the air she breathed at the wrong time? Um, it's, it's, you know, really just wondering if something good in your life has just been a dream. 
and uh, very sad. But once again, you know, Bowie's lyric writing is 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 great. It's great on this album. It's just the delivery. It, he is very much on Quaalude Bowie time. Um, even when the band kicks into high gear, he doesn't, um, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, but, you know, it, it doesn't. But it's also like he's singing in tune. It's just he's not using his usual range. He's very low register and then a little bit behind the beat. It, it never sounds bad. I, I guess I should say that when I when I'm when I'm talking about his poor vocal performance on this. It's not that he sounds bad. It's not going to be grating to your ears or anything like that. It's just like we know what he can do, and he chooses to use this very small pocket of his range and then do it a little bit behind the beat every song. Um, but the wrong time, wrong place part does get stuck in my head, as it has all week. And the rocky parts, I do appreciate. So this is one of the be better showings. Not my favorite, but it is, it's, it's pretty great. The next song is Seven. I forgot what my father said. I forgot what he said. I forgot what my mother said as we lay on your bed. A city full of flowers. A city full of rain I got seven days to live my life Or seven ways to die Seven deadly sins Seven ways to win Seven holy paths to hell And you're something something That's um... That's how the excellent Iron Maiden album, Seventh Son of a Seventh Son, opens. And I look for any excuse to think about that opening. What do you think about Seven, Mark? <laughs> well, I would probably prefer to listen to Maiden's version. Um, it, you could tell that, again, this is, uh, you know, it's coffee shop Bowie version. Um, you've got the acoustic guitar really starting everything out. Um, it is a little more catchy than Thursday's child and survive. So this again was released as a single. So you kind of get the theme here of what he was really trying to telegraph that, uh, come for the, this is the CD that you see while you're buying a latte in the morning at Starbucks staring at you right next to the Nora Jones records. So, um, I don't really have much to say about what the what you get on the album version, but I will say, uh, not to steal any of Eric's remix thunder, I did actually really enjoy the two remixes from Beck. expanded edition of ours um, they completely deconstruct and turn it into something where uh, musically it's you can tell it's back um, but I had a lot more enjoyment listening to those two versions um, what did you think yeah. Eric of the, no, yeah, the no, yeah 
For sure. Um, the Beck Mix 1 is pretty much like the standard structure, but it there's a hip-hop beat, and um, the synth and keyboard sound suddenly... It's actually like really good, like produced synthesizer sounds. It's not just this weird, airy MIDI sound. It's, you know, I don't know. I know I'm harping on the MIDI sound a lot, but he's shown he can do so much better. And Beck does better in just this one little remix. The second remix is a much noisier approach. very much aligned with his uh Beck's uh Odelay work um when those little like the, the you get into the beat and then it would all go into noise uh which I appreciate you know that's the that's the Beck stuff I love so um yeah those two remixes are fantastic I I'm gonna say something controversial about this song I'm gonna say Bowie wrote an amazing song seven could stack up with his early like you know he could have written this back in the late 60s early 70s and it would have it would have knocked out of the park um he could have wrote this honestly at any time in his career and like mark said it's very catchy um the song is is it's basically like you're telling your parents you don't you don't need them anymore and you're moving on and then you realize that actually you need their wisdom it's uh once again, it's I guess it's that's kind of a boomer mentality, but realizing that the older people actually have something to give, I think that's that's a fairly timeless idea. Um, uh, and it's catchy as hell. I mean, I I this song has been stuck in my head all week. Uh, however, the album version has acoustic guitar, but all the acoustic guitar stuff sounds like he's playing it on nylon strings. And it all sounds all shimmery. And then the the goddamn MIDI synth. The demo version's interesting because it's very similar, but there's organs playing. And I guess when they played it live, um, so, uh, uh, Mike Garson would play organ. I listen to the shadows. I play among the graves. My and it sounds actually much better so i'd recommend checking that version out uh and then uh there's another uh, uh marius devries version that you know expands on it a little bit but i i would say songwriting wise this is his tightest best written song on the album but in presentation not so much eric i actually i don't totally disagree with you um this is definitely not one of the lesser songs in the album. It's in the middle of me. It's pleasant to listen to. Um, I think his actually his, his, his singing is pretty good on it. Um, I like the slide guitar quite a bit. It's got some good slide guitar going on. It's. I, I think my, my, my general statement on this whole album is the skeleton of these songs. If they were put in any other Bowie era, probably would have ended up being more memorable. And so I definitely agree with you to your point about this track. Um, 
One other issue, though, is it seems to have like plastic bongo drums in it, which is a strange choice. Yeah. Yep. Very strange. <laughs> Very strange. But they had apparently a yet another yet another song that uh, the uh, an, an, a, a very similar version to this version ended up in Omicron, Omicron the Nomad Soul. The Nomad Soul. Hey, I don't know if you know this, but Pod Like a Hole has a Patreon. That's right, patreon.com slash pod like a hole. Some of you nice people out there donate a little bit to us every month. You know, it helps us keep the show up, buy better equipment, make the show sound better for you. Who knows what we could do with more more donations? We could film our own Omicron, Omicron. Nomad Soul, the movie, starring us. Anything's possible with Patreon. Omicron, the Nomad Soul. Actually, no, it's not. I was looking at the lyrics real quick. I'll give you this too, Eric. There's a line in here that says, The gods forgot they made me, so I forgot them too. I listen to their shadows. I play among their graves. That's a that's a good bit of lyricism. Yeah, there. yeah. I, his lyrics are, are fine on this album. It's just... I mean, the, the, gods, the gods forgot they made me, so I forgot them too. That could be an Iron Maiden lyric. So it all ties together. All right. Next is what's really happening. story to this song on bowie net you could uh submit a song lyrics uh to and there was very specific rules that had to be this many verses and this many choruses whatever and if you won you get to the not only bowie would perform it but you could have an input into the the song writing process so alex grant from Ohio, 20 years old at the time. Um, he won. He won this song, and he wrote this song to be about uh, the dangers of internet culture, uh, getting stuck on the internet, internet addiction, grown inside a plastic box, micro thoughts and safety locks, hearts become outdated clocks, ticking your mind, what's really happening, tore us apart. It's about a relationship that that dies because one person is addicted to the internet. And that is what the song is about. And Alex Grant wrote it. He got a uh he got uh 
they didn't know that it would even be possibly on an actual David Bowie album. They thought David Bowie would just sing it for his website. But he had he brought Alex Grant in. There's some great videos on online about uh, that were on BowieNet. Now you can watch them wherever of uh, them in the studio hashing out the song. And to everybody's surprise, it, may, it wound up on an official Bowie album. And Alex Grant got fifteen thousand uh, dollars in publishing uh, for co-writing the song. And um, yeah, so anyways, that was a bit of a trend, apparently. Um, Todd Rundgren uh, in 1993 did New World or No World Order, where fans actually were the producers and engineers. He just released the uh, the stems and all of the fans produced the album. So this kind of idea has been around. Um, but uh, as far as the song itself, um, it's about as rocking as this album gets. Yeah. Sounds like a 90s alternative jam, I guess. I don't know. It's fine. Yeah, I'll, uh, I, I do like that they actually got Alex and his buddy Larry to sing on the song. Uh, they do backup vocals. And I think it's pretty cool. He gave some guy, just random guy, $15,000 for, for these lyrics. Right. It's pretty fun. It turns out that members of The Cure also entered into this contest. So they were trying to backdoor their way into working with Bowie. <laughs> Which reminds me, I, 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 I've had, I, uh, I've had the Cure box set of B sides for years, but I never listened to it. it, it it's hard for me to sit down and listen to a bo- a, a complete B sides uh, box set. Oh, God, it sounds, uh, sounds, like, my, it sounds like like my cream dream right there. Yeah, <laughs> the uh, the two the two bands that like Nick Cave's box set of B sides and Smashing Pumpkins box set of B sides. I think it was the only two box sets of B sides I've ever made it through. But did you guys ever listen to their version of Young Americans, The Cure? A long time ago. Good stuff. So uh, anyhow, uh, this song is okay. Um, It kind of tries to rock and you know it's trying, which takes away from it a little bit. What do you think, Mark? So this is our first taste of where he takes the sound on reality for me. Um, Oh, yeah, I can see that. It's catchy enough um it's the yeah yeah that makes me think of the reality album uh i, I it's catchy enough and it, you know this song does start essentially the rocker side of ours if you think about it um and you know at least it's trying to shake things up i, I will give it that and I think I like the story about this uh, song more than the actual song itself. Um, it's a forgettable song. You know, a lot of times as we're right before recording, I still have to jump on despite my notes to be like, all right, well, wh- which one is this again? So I think this whole album kind of suffers from just having forgettable songs on it, to be honest. This is just kind of another one of those filler songs, if you ask me. I agree with you. And I also think that if you saw the movie Stigmata, you would definitely not remember that the pretty things are going to hell was on that soundtrack. And it happens to be the next track on this album. What to say, what to do on a sunny day. Who 
All right. So continuing in the rocking vein is the pretty things are going to hell. I struggle with this song because it really does try to be a rocker. I feel like it telegraphs too hard that it's trying to be a rocker. And it sounds like a pale imitation of quad 106.5 late nineties. I'll turn a rock. It's just, uh, it doesn't do a whole lot for me. I'll, I, I, I do like the guitar solo in it. It's not a complete loss. I think Reeves has a good guitar solo in it. That's what I got. Uh, it's, I, at sometimes I think this is my favorite song on the album, but it's not, um, because, the the because it does it does trick me into thinking it's a fun rocker and so in some ways it's it's closest cousin is uh neighborhood threats <laughs> on on tonight where it it's rocking until you realize you're just listening to some i don't know rock by numbers song which is what it feels like um however it was meant to be a parody um, or at least Bowie claimed it was meant to be a parody. Uh, and I do for that. It's actually pretty funny um, where he's, uh, you know, the pretty things are going to hell. Uh, I'm a drug. I'm a dragon. I'm the best jazz you've ever seen. Uh, basically, he's talking about like now in the 2000s, uh, 2000, late, you know, late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, Glam is dead. Uh, all of the fashion people, the pretty people are stupid, like out of touch reality stars. All the real, real art is ugly and edgy. And and so, you know, the pretty things are going to hell, like, you know, glam and that's all dead. And that, that was where he came from. So he was kind of parroting his himself. Um, I do appreciate that. And I think it's, it's a pretty funny lyric. This, the, the songs are, the, the lyrics are pretty funny. Um, but yeah, it does sound like uh, uh, very much, uh, you know, uh, the, the the music is is pretty crisp and it could it could rock a little bit more. Um, the song reminds me of like uh, I'm not a fan of this band by any means, even though it seems a lot of my favorite bands always cite them. Uh, Smashing Pumpkins is not one of my favorite bands, but Cheap Trick. For whatever reason, it sounds like a cheap trick song, and not just any cheap trick sh- song. It sounds like a version of a cheap trick song that you would play in Guitar Hero or something like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Um, it, the very specific description that fits. <laughs> I don't know. Um, plastic rock and roll uh, is. It just sounds so disposable. And um, certainly trying to fit in to the sound of the day, to Steve's point, just late 90s, early aughts, alternative rock music, your, I don't know, it, it, it's just, it, he's wearing it like a cheap suit uh, in this album. I don't know. I, I prefer him dabbling into industrial and electronic music and still not acting his age, but at least he was putting his own spin on it. This is him trying to be someone that he's clearly not. Well, I feel like the, the uh, stigmata versions are a little bit more that way. Um, 
so it's weird. There is the stigmata. Um, there's two versions. There was the one that was on the soundtrack and there was one that was in the movie. The soundtrack is just the same song, but it has a, all the guitars are pushed through a compressor and definitely sound more industrial. And I like it better than the album version. What is eternal? What is And then there is the the version that was in the movie, which is the same one, but they add a four on the floor bass drum and they crank the the speed up like it's a much faster song and it's actually pretty stupid. Uh, I I really like the soundtrack version um, where it's just the same the same speed, but they add a thicker guitar to it. Um, it just sounds a little bit more authentic. I mean, with this, uh, go ahead, Steve. Yeah, I was just going to say real fast that I think that Bowie is making a joke of it, whereas Reeves is deadly serious about this song. Yes. So yes. I think that there's then, a little bit of things that are a little out of order, but go ahead, Steve. Right. I was going to say two things to your point, Eric, I, I wanted to bring up stigmata again. Um, it's interesting that that it ended up on that movie because um, that was the first new guns and roses song of the Axel only guns and roses era. Uh, his attempt at industrial to an extent, a song called, Oh my God which is not great. And, uh, you know, he wouldn't put out anything else until Chinese democracy came out. But again, some of Reeves Gabrell's guitar parts in this album really remind me of some guitar tones on Chinese democracy. So it's funny. There's that tie in. Sorry, quick editor's note. Steve is so close, but Oh my God, by guns and roses was not from the stigmata soundtrack. It was from the end of days soundtrack. It makes sense. 1999, couple movies about hell, and what can I say? Steve's an Arnold guy. Um, also, Stigma, also, Stigmata had a, a warm place with vocals, uh, with a female vocalist singing, and then that got deleted from the soundtrack. But we've talked about it in season one, just saying. Yes, go back in your archives. Uh, also, there's a video for this that never got released that we've talked about before. That was directed by Dom and Nick, who made I'm Afraid of Americans. And the video had those Jim Henson creature shop Bowie puppets, marionettes that were chasing Bowie around. And uh, it was again, Bowie commenting on his past life and all his, you know, if there's one thing that Bowie likes to do more than bring up that this new album is the best album since scary monsters. It's he likes to talk about all those past Bowies he used to be. And that was what that video was. He was being chased around by a, a Ziggy Stardust puppet, a ashes to ashes clown puppet, a thin white Duke puppet and a man who sold the world puppet. It never got released. And weren't those videos used in something related to next day? Uh, LCD. Yeah, sound system? it was. Uh, thing is lost. Love is lost. Love is lost. Love is lost. There we go. Yeah. 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 No. Yeah. I would have loved to see the, uh, the video for this though, with those puppets. That would be great. They have not released. Hey, you go they have not released the tapes yet. Yeah. Go, go hang out in Pollock pines long enough. I'm sure somebody will, uh, show it to you 
All right. <laughs> <laughs> uh so in, in my in my opinion uh, the album goes out strongly for this album starting with this next track new angels of promise take us to the Yeah, I've talked about it before, but there is a circle of Bowie fans that keep track of a certain uh, trilogy of songs. Well, it's more like a quadrilogy of songs, his angel songs. And uh, it starts with Man Who Sold the World, uh, where you where it's this kind of angel of death. And then you have um, uh, Look Back in Anger, which is that same conversation from the angel's perspective. Then you go on to this, this song, which is these like two new angels, uh, a blind angel who's observing mankind, um, you know, is observing the negative interactions of modern, modern humans. And then the other angel, that's his eyes that can see it. And then, and then it all, you know, accumulates into my favorite song off heathen, which was the five fifteen, the angels arrive or whatever. Um, but yeah, that's the four angel songs. So this is one of those. Uh, this started out on Omicron, the Nomad Soul. Uh, there's a version on there. Once again, very similar. Um, slightly more haunting with some ghost whales, which I actually appreciate the Omicron version for that. I do like this. Uh, this may be my favorite song on the album. Um, it is uh, uh, a great story. It has the it has more atmosphere than the rest of this album, which I always appreciate. Uh, so, there you go. Um, so I don't hate this song, uh, but I also don't love it. Uh, what I do really like about it, though, is that it does have a little bit of uh, nostalgia and reminiscing about how Bowie used to structure a song. So you do kind of get that blender going on in here. Uh, I think it's his delivery of the O-O-O's, you know. Um, I kind of wish this song um, was the template of the entire album, though. Even though I'm not in love with it as much as Eric being this is his favorite song off the record, I wish that he did try to um, take what we all used to really enjoy about David Bowie because the opening riff, it does sound, which we'll talk about on our last review of Sons of the Silent Age, um, and it also has a little bit of uh, even, I'm a Peter Gabriel fan, I can hear a little bit of San Jacinto in here as well. Um, nice. So. 
there are things and elements about this song that I really do like. Uh, it's just, once again, it's missing something to really push it over the edge. And I kind of think it's, I'm going to say, I think Reeves is, is, is my least favorite collaborator of his as we've gone through his, uh, his whole history here. I think that Reeves is really took him off track. Um, I don't know what it is. I just, I'm not a fan of his guitar playing. Um, I think he's got moments, but I think over, he just tries to overpower David Bowie. It's this, even though they were pretty, you know, great collaborators in the sense of their creativity and they seem to work well off each other. I just don't like Reeves Gabrels as much as I thought I did. Um, so it's, it's not a bad song. I just wish that they, instead of kind of meandering around, I think that they could have used this song as a template for, let's try to, uh, put out something that is that Bowie sound, but try to update it in a way that, uh, isn't as polarizing. I don't know. Um, I feel like I, I think your yeah go ahead. I think your Reeves comment your Reeves comments are you know I I feel like there's a debate to be had there. I'm not so invested. Well, I would well I will fight you on that. Um, I feel like like Outside is one of my favorite Bowie albums, but Reeves is so subtle on that album. He's he is. not showing off. He is. He's not showing off that maybe anybody could do that. Because um, I think I think Eno and Mike Garson really kind of like keep him in his corner. Um, right. And I think that right. it lets Bowie do his his work there. And I think once Eno left and Visconti's not around, and um, Earthling definitely has Mike Garson doing his thing. Uh, but here he was like, "All right, this is my kind of time to shine." So I, don't know. I was gonna say, just Reeves, just I I don't know what it is about him that I just like he a lot of times. He sounds like he's trying to rev up a car and the guitar never, or, or he's trying to rev up a car and the car never goes anywhere. And that just seems to be like him. His style to me is flash without any substance at all. But even his flashiness is hard to define what he's trying to do. And on this album, he gets a couple licks in, he gets some slide guitar parts that I like. Uh, a couple riffs here and there, but yeah, as is is being just a side by side collaborator with Bowie, I think it really exposes him. And and yeah, w- without Garson, Eno, and uh, uh, whomever else to try to flesh these songs out, it just I think he's very exposed. I think it, I think his perfect place is where he ended up being. Uh, what uh, back up to Robert Smith and the Cure? That's a perfect <laughs> place for him. Yeah. Uh, I'm not saying that to be rude. I think that's a good spot for somebody that has his weird style. Give some shading to some cure songs. That's awesome. Yeah. The cure songs can always use more shading. Yeah. I was a big I, fan I, of his I work think, in I wrong think, number. I think wrong number is an excellent song. And wrong number has that same guitar tone that some of these songs do actually that weird Chinese democracy guitar tone that you find on some of these songs. That's what he's good at. Put a whole rock song, rock band around that not a semi-acoustic Bowie throwback album, and that works. Wrong Number's a great song. Listen to that song, everybody. You, you like it. It's a Cure song. It's great. I think even like Earthling, he would do his crazy guitar shit, but it would be 
chopped and screwed and used as a sample. And it's a little bit more easy to digest that way, I guess. Yeah, on this one as a co... And, and, and by this album, Reeves also knew that if he wasn't going to actually write some like ambient keyboard stuff, he wasn't going to be part of the fold anymore. And maybe that's not his strength because a lot of the keyboard licks and stuff were written by Reeves also. And I think he was, you know, trying to stay relevant as much as he could with Bowie. And uh, yeah, anyways, I will agree with you that while I like his presence on other albums, this is not a strength and we can never, I mean, honestly, can we forgive him for Tim Machine? I don't think we can. I think, I, I, I think. Well, that's it. I mean, at least the sales brothers, uh, they, they, they get to talk about being on one of the greatest rock albums of all time, which will be our next episode, by the way. Right. Um, right. But anyhow, I actually do like this song quite a bit as far as this album goes. I like, what is that? What was that? that? Is it flutes? What is that first thing you hear on this track? What sounds like it. it. Sounds like it. You got some flutes and I think those flutes are cool because they remind me of the voyeurism and the mysticism of the low trilogy, which leads into the next track very well. Brilliant adventure. So brilliant adventure. Sounds like a leftover from the low trilogy. I really like it. What do you guys think? Yeah, same. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it is, it's, but it also has kind of, <laughs> it, it just can't help itself. It has, it has some of that nineties, uh, you know, in a massage parlor playing at Koto, <laughs> Koto, like just the Eastern influence. I don't know. It adds a, and Bowie played it all. I mean, this was his composition. He played the Koto, um, it dev- but yeah, it does have, it still feels like a day spa as opposed to like some of the, uh, kind of more psychedelic ambient stuff on low, but I do like it as a break from the rest of the stuff. At least it has a little atmosphere. Well, I tell you what, I would have taken a day spa bullshit, uh, over outside skits on outside. If instead of the outside skits, it had a song like this in this place, I think outside would have been a stronger album. Weird. I mean, I'm I'm a little bit uh, more on Steve's side of this because uh, we're not we haven't talked about it yet, but the song Moss Garden off Heroes uh, sounds very reminiscent of this, and um, it's just you know definitely sounds like someone who's got their little rock garden in their uh, on their desk. It's music that you would listen to as you're raking the sand. So it's it's fine. It's it's surprising that it's here. Um, I think that's what kind of jars me the most. Like, wow, what are we doing here? Um, but you know, I enjoy it short. It kind of calms me down. It's not, it's nice. I don't think there's much more to say about it. So let's talk about the dream.
Eric, what do you think about the Dreamers? This song is uh, on paper. It's it's very interesting. It was uh, it was it was part of Omicron, Omicron the Nomad Soul. The nomad soul. Um, it is a end of the world. It, 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 he's written a few uh, post-apocalyptic songs. Um, Diamond Dogsy. Uh, you could put this there. It's uh, black-eyed ravens. They spiral down. They tilt his head back to the flame-filled sunset. End of the world stuff. But then he's talking about the darkness falls. These are the days, boys. Shallow man. Shallow man. Uh, the song is about the shallow man. The, the, the fact that you know, people with real ideas are dying out and this this new, you know, ruling race is shallow people. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I, it, it's such a trite idea for Bowie that, like, the survivors or the artists and the ruling class are these, like, dullard, you know, people with no ideas. I mean, yes, but I feel like he's done that better, more subtle before. Um, it's pretty on the nose. Um, that being said, there is a backbeat that and a trumpet blast that Dr. Dre could have produced that I really like about this song. Um, that kind of drives it. Um, still, it's too clean cut for the subject matter, in my opinion. Um, but I do like that part. What do you guys think? Well, I really yeah, I, I think I think this one rocks without trying. I think it, it rocks more organically than your pretty things going to hell as the song picks up in the second half. And he has the last of the dreamers. I think it's, it's good Bowie. I, I think everything kind of falls into place for this song where I, I, I more songs like this on this album. I would have liked this album more. Um, there's some good Bowie background harmonies going on with, uh, during the chorus, you can hear like little just uh, off out of tempo vocalizations. He reaches, he reaches for some vocal heights on this song that he doesn't reach on the rest of the album. He sounds awake on this track sure. for me. Lyrically, there's a level of melancholy here that yes, it's more what well, you just went through talking about Eric, you know, I'm just like, all right, we get it. We get it. But he, he, he just seems to have more oomph yeah, in this that's track. Fair. I, I think my problem is that it's, Bowie versus the normies. I feel like that's a song he never should have had to do. Like he always was winning the war against the normies, but he made a song about that. It's, I don't know. I just feel like he didn't need to do it, but uh, I do like the sound of it though. And for this, uh, and this is not the album that you fight the normies on because he's pretty, he's pretty normie the whole album. (laughs) But yeah, this song. Yeah. The the videos are him with the videos are brushing your teeth. The videos are making breakfast, (laughs) but I think this song ends strong and actually points. He's done it again, guys. You know how there's always a song that kind of points to the next direction on the best Bowie albums. Uh, you know, uh, oh, crap. We've gone through all his records by now. You Even. know what I'm talking about. Sure. There's always like on, on, on diamond dogs. There's a song that points to young Americans on young Americans. There's a song that points to sure. station to station on station to station. There's a song that points to low blah, blah, blah. Uh, this isn't the best Bowie album, but this song definitely seems to traject towards heathen. Sure. In my opinion. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the big things that uh, I took away from this song was just that you can hear the makings of kind of the direction that he was going in um 
I actually think it's a pretty good album closer. Um, it is probably the, one of the more interesting tracks that you get kind of on side two. Um, yeah, not bad. I I actually prefer this song over a lot of them over here. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. And then there was a Omicron, the Nomad Soul version, which is a little bit longer. Um, and uh, <laughs> a longer version. Longer version of anything on this. I know. And then um, yeah. there was four uh, B-sides as well on that expanded edition. True. Um, Correct. Do you want to talk about those, Eric? Yeah, uh, so the first one was uh, 1917. There was four uh, B-sides as well True. on that expanded edition. Correct. Um, you want to talk about those, yeah, Eric? Uh, so the first one was uh, 1917. Um, this was a battle song in the game Omicron, the Nomad Soul. Uh, and it is it feels like a battle song when you listen to it. This one's actually pretty fun. Uh, Bowie's just doing some, like, uh, counterfeit body machine like he's doing some like uh, megaphone singing the whole time you don't know what he's saying something about I'm a man something about that I don't know but he's talking is, is he yelling about sovereignty again <laughs> <laughs> but it's a good it's, it's a good battle track like for the game like my head I was like okay I could see like a boss fight with this song this is this is fun 1917 hey no, hold on a second did you ever I can't remember did you ever beat Bioshock? Yes, the first. Oh, yes, very recently, actually. Okay. Very recently, I sent you that. What's next? What's next? What's next for you and your your travels to the Bioshock? You can go to part two or part three. You can go right to part three. Yeah, I, you guys have recommended I go straight to Infinity. So infi- yeah. in, Infinite or whatever. Yeah, that's, that's Infinite. Yeah, that's next. That one's a good although one. I, that one's a brain melter. Although I have been playing uh, Full Throttle after uh, a non-released. Hey episode of our show where we talked about that game that's right folks we we talked about every lucas arts game ever made and um it's going in the vault and it's staying there (laughs) (laughs) well that Um, sometimes you know you get off the rails and it's fun in the moment and maybe nobody wants to get on those rails who knows Hey, not every not everything is good radio. I I think other podcasts should understand that. That's a that's a good point. Uh, another song from Omicron, the Nomad Soul, was "We Shall Go to Town." No more delay. Or 
this one, Gabriel's, was just aghast. This was this was another nail in the coffin. He was getting ready to leave Bowie. This was excluded from the album. Um, it was supposed to be about people so grotesque uh, that uh, when they walked in the streets, um, people would turn to stone. And tonight's the night we're going to go to town. It's our last night on earth. They're going to kill us because we're such freaks. That's what the song's about. Um, and uh, it's actually better than most most of ours. Um, uh, there's a little subtle sax going on and a gargoyle voice. Uh, this one's kind of fun. I um, there's a good good guitar solo. Um, yeah, I, I like this one. This one has um, a mood to it, uh, uh, outside type mood to it, and uh, I enjoy it. I listened to all four uh, bonus tracks, but again, my memory serves no purpose. I remember liking 1917, and then the next track, we all go through. Well, let's go on to that um, one. Let's go, let's go on to that one. Praises with dumb replies. Nobody's eyes anymore. Found you Walking this lonely sky. Nothing in my luck of day. So apparently, if you beat Omicron, Omicron the Nomad, the nomad Soul, um, this is your final song. It, it plays over the. Eric, you get every time you do it, you sound sexier. This is, uh, <laughs> starting uh, to, to, to quote to quote George Costanza. You, you know, eventually it it might move. <laughs> I expect to hear at least one swing when that happens. Uh, so we all go through. Um, is uh, a track it, when you beat Omicron, you would get this over the end credits. Um, and uh, it's very triumphant. Uh, it fits ours sonically, um, but still, it's very clean production. I don't know. It's 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 fun for a. I, I bet you, if you beat that game, the song feels like you're taking a bath in lotion. It's, it sounds, it sounds amazing, but sonically it just sounds like our stuff. So I don't know. Bath in lotion, a bath in lotion. That sounds <laughs> something that, uh, I feel that Eric has tried at least once. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the last song on here is called no one calls. about this one is if there was one song on here that may have come from the outside two sessions the outside two contamination sessions it was this song it's very weird it's it it's very it, it could it's weird enough to be an outside song um uh it's more interesting and atmospheric than the rest of uh ours in my opinion um it was an Omicron song. Uh, I don't know. It was called Awaken Two on in the Omicron uh, uh, database. But what do you what do you think about this one, Mark? 
Um, I definitely see your point to how it just sounds like it could be ripped from a outside sequel. Um, yeah, I mean, that's basically all I will agree with you on that statement. Um, it sounds a little bit twin peaksy, uh, a lot of atmosphere, like you said, but that's, that's all I got. Yeah. But it was a pleasant surprise on these bonus tracks. Well, so Reeves Gabriels was up to a lot of stuff in 1998 and 1999. He was on the He Got Game soundtrack, the Spike Lee movie, uh, where he played uh, guitar alongside uh, Danny Saber and Jack Dangers from Me Be Manifesto as they produced the public enemy song, Go Cat Go. song um and then you get reeves shredding all over a rap song uh towards the end but that was one song he did during this era I, I, very interesting that's a very interesting mix of people but uh i'll i'll check that right. out um but then reeves put out an album called ulysses and uh uh <laughs> Yeah, I gave, I gave I gave that song with Bowie a day in court, and uh, unfortunately Reeves was led away in handcuffs. It was not good. <laughs> the, song, the song is called Jewel. Uh, 50th birthday bash uh, Reeves and Bowie were at a table with uh, Frank Black from the Pixies and Dave Grohl and they all said hey man let's make like let's just make this album that sounds like uh, Blind Faith which is you know like a super group of blues guys let's just do that yeah, it's a it's a it's a Zeppelin Bird right. era yeah, super group. Yeah, bird exactly. Kind of and yeah. they're like, let's do that, but like our music. And apparently this was that song. <laughs> it's it's loud, it's schlonky, and all the vocals are pretty bad. They're mixed right in the front. If you were to if, if you were to have if you were to have an album that was actually Dave Grohl, Reeves Gabrels, and Frank Black, and um I guess they better find a bass player um, with David Bowie and vocals and they sat down and made a proper album. I bet it would be really cool. Yeah. 
together and have Reeves be the singer, that's not a good idea. Yeah, and to be, they all sing on it at some point, but it is, it's a mess. And yeah, Reeves, Reeves vocals are, it's, it's pretty, uh, it's horrid. It's, it's a horrid song. It's, it, uh, 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 people say that it was meant to be a, you know, a, a bit of a, a, a spoof on 90s rock, but you don't get to say that after the fact. That doesn't change the fact that it's horrid. That's that that song is really bad, really bad. Yeah, fitting a fitting a fitting last bit of work for Reeves and Bowie was that. It's uh, it's very interesting that on our podcast, where we tried to randomize everything, and we did, we managed to clump. We and the reason we did that is because we didn't want to get stuck in one era for too long. You know, we didn't we we didn't want to. I I think. We didn't want to deal with the 80s Bowie all in one clump. We didn't want to deal with the, the aughts Bowie all in one clump. I did not want to deal with all the 90s Bowie all in one clump, but it happened. <laughs> and uh, the biggest offender, I feel, is Reeves Gabrels. Just, just, uh, yeah. Just, I, I, and I'm, I'm sure if we go on the Bowie Reddit, the Bowie Usenets, the Bowie bulletin boards from the old days, there probably are a lot of debates over his uh, warrant as uh, the quality uh, as a collaborator. Uh, I guess, I mean, and my problem with him is that all of that is to say that, hey, you could say at least he was interesting, but I don't know if he was. I think the most interesting thing about him was his name was weird. <laughs> you know, it's one thing that I learned because if you look at Heathen, uh, Reality, um, Next Day, and Black Star, Bowie never really has that uh, that right-hand man anymore, if you think about it. It's not Earl Slick. You don't really hear him being real talked about. It really is just like David Bowie. Okay, here's my hired guns, but I'm I'm the leader now. You know, yeah. The constant is Tony Visconti is the only exactly uh, guy holding the, the the constant on those. I think he's on all four of those. Right. Uh, uh, I should know. We we talked about all four of them. <laughs> he's not on reality, is he? Oh, yeah. He oh, is yeah. on reality. No, he, yeah, he, that's right. But there's a lot of cooks in that okay. kitchen, though. Um, but no, he's, yeah. yeah, he's on the last four records. Yeah. yeah, but you're. I think you're right. I think it it did shift back to him being the, um, the kind of the uh, let's keep Bowie on on the train tracks kind of thing. Yeah, I'm gonna give I'll give hours one thing which we need to rate now. Um. There was a lot of talk about Bowie getting older, and I think there is any, you know, anytime you're approaching 50, which is where we'll all be in a decade, by the way, decade and change, uh, that's when you're old. And that was definitely a, a a topic for Bowie. He had a 50th birthday bash. Then he released this album. I think he kind of went too overboard uh, on this record. I think all of a sudden he thought he's like, you know, I need to be enough with the raver pants and the glam. I'm old now. He went too far into the direction of being old with ours. That, uh, he, you know, he, 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 there's a, there's a mid, there's a midland there. He could have landed in. I think by leaning so hard into being mature, whether he'll admit it or not, I think he realized that he went too far into that direction and he dialed it back a little bit with uh, heathen in the next few records. I think there's a maturity to the next few albums that is great. And ours is, uh, helped him get there, but only because ours went too far in one direction. He reined it back in for heathen. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And I think you're really onto something there. What's your, what's, I do. what's your rating on that, Steve? 
I'll give it a two. And the reason I'll give it a two is because it is very boring. And usually being boring is worse than being worse than being bad. I often, I mean, I think I'll actually probably put never let me down on before I put this on again, but I do like those last three tracks quite a bit. And I do like um, that seven minute long song whose name escapes me right now quite a bit. Uh, and there's a guitar tone. It really is weird. We've, we've, I've, I've given Reeves what for the majority of this podcast. There are times when he has a guitar tone, an electric guitar tone that I really appeals to my ear. Um, it's not enough to say that he was uh, the cat's pajamas and uh, all that in a bag of chips to quote Dave Bowie himself. I, so it barely gets a two from me. Barely. Sure. And that's that, that's my score. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, I think you're spot on. I think even like reality, which came out four years later, um, is not a great album. And I did score that one pretty low, but it still felt more authentic. And there were at least a few songs that caught your attention on that one. Um, this one is so sleepy, so sleepy. I, I, at this, at the time, if you want to play acoustic guitar and have some synths over it, I mean, that was, there was like Radiohead. That was a pure time for Radiohead doing a very similar thing. And they did it much better. Um, I don't know. Well, yeah, but yeah, I mean, and there's nothing wrong with sleepy music. I mean, shit, we all love yeah. a lot of that. I mean, Bonnie Prince Billy is one of my favorite, uh, singer songwriters and his stuff. Isn't going to shake you out of bed in the morning. <laughs> sure. uh, uh, you know, uh, like we said, the Black Heart Procession—they're pretty down tempo. Um, I, there's a there's a ton of of, of singer songwriters that are quiet that we like, but there's a you have to have a dynamic to your song craft in order to make it work. Even if it's just one person and acoustic guitar, you got to You got to at least make the listeners feel like there's a reason that they're sure, showing up sure. as well, and it. it he has trouble with that. I would, I would say this is the the one that is the most the most difference between songwriting craft and presentation, because I think his songwriting is pretty on point. But how it's conveyed and 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 from his singing and from the compositions, just hold it back. So that's I, I give it a two out of five. But songwriting earned a lot of that too. Not so much the presentation. I'm right there with you guys. Uh, I, I've yet to actually score anything just a straight two uh, throughout this whole podcast. And um, when I kind of look at the rankings of where this kind of fits in, I think that fits in perfectly uh, for my master ranking list. There are elements of this that are boring but never frustrating if that makes any sense there is a lot of frustrating parts on some of bowie's lower works um this is just more surprisingly of the choices that were made but it's more about of the time that he was trying to go in i think to steve's point um he was realizing the age that he was in and he was trying to write something that um made him not so out of place at times that he succeeded um, by more skewing to let's see if I can age with my original crowd that was into me back in those days. Um, and 
you know, it's just, and then there's other port parts where he still doesn't want to necessarily discourage his new fans that came along during the outside years. And, uh, I'm afraid of Americans having that be such a big hit with you know, nine inch nails crew. Um, so I think that there, he was trying to do a tightrope act that didn't necessarily come off very, uh, effectively. Um, so I will give him points, uh, and I think that it, it, it's never, like I said, frustrating. It's just blah, blasé, and that's kind of why I just rate him a two. Um, it's never embarrassing, should I say, if that makes any sense. Sure. Hey, Lennox. Uh, hey, buddy, what do you think about the album Hours? Your you know favorite song? What's your ranking? Um... I would say that it would be like maybe a two out of five bolts, maybe. That's pretty generous. Because it's like a really boring album that I don't have a favorite or a least favorite song. It's just too boring. All the songs are bad because every single song is just so boring. Hey, old people, you're boring. Right, Lennox? Huh? Is that what you're saying? Huh? Nothing. <laughs> two out of five, though? Sounds more like a one out of five review. Glastonbury. Before Let's we talk, talk about, about Glastonbury, uh, there's a band from the UK called Placebo. Uh, members including Brian Molko, uh, Stefan Alsdahl, and uh, some other uh, rotating members. They did a song called Without You I'm Nothing. Such imagination seems to help the feeling slide I'll take it by your side Instant correlation sucks and breeds a pack of lies I'll take it by your side On an album of the same name um, and when they came time to release the single Bowie wanted to be a part of it. And there's a great photo of Bowie in the studio with Placebo performing the song and Tony Visconti is there. Maybe that's the first photo of their road to reunification. But uh, Bowie's performance on that song is fun. He's singing along with the band. They're actually a pretty good band. I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, I'm a fan. Yeah, I'm a fan of Placebo. That song's good. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's cool. It's kind of kind of kind of like what he would do with LC or uh, Arcade Fire. Not too, not many years later. Um, uh, a really fun one. Check out on the single is Uncle, who we've talked about on the show before. Remixes that song and actually turns it into a trip hop song. It's a lot of fun. I enjoy that 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 remix. That's cool. I'll check that out. Recommended. But yes, Glastonbury 2000. That is a DVD that's been sitting on the shelf that I've been waiting to watch until we got to this album. There's a lot of uh, 
lore around Glastonbury 2000 if you're a Bowie fan. In 1990, he toured for Sound and Vision and said, that's it, no more hits. I'm not going to play hits again. And having gone to the outside tour, I can attest there were very little hits performed at that show. But Glastonbury 2000, he dusted off his, his old hits and showed up for one night, one night only. And uh, his band was very interesting. It was Sterling Campbell, who's been playing drums with him for three albums now. Gail Ann Dorsey on bass. Earl Slick. Uh, well, anyways, they were going to dust off some old songs. And uh, oh, and the uh, rhythm guitarist was Mark Plotty, who was uh, Bowie makes in the diary there. He's like, he's the first producer I've let be a part of my band since Tony. Uh, so Mark Plotty was playing guitar and, uh, I watched Glastonbury, uh, yesterday. It's a great concert. Um, the band's good. I will say it is a, it is a very clean, it is very hours sounding like, like they'll play some of their old songs and every now and then it sounds a little too clean. It sounds a little bit safe, uh, but nobody was complaining that night. It was the first time Bowie pulled out these old hits in a long time. And it's the last time he played them. I don't know, maybe for a while, uh, but there's some great tracks on there. And uh, Ash Dash just sounds fantastic. Space, uh, Space Oddity. Sounds great. Um, they don't play a single song from ours, which is telling. Uh, they do play uh, two songs from Earthling. Uh, they play uh, Little Wonder and I'm Afraid of Americans is the final song at the end of the encore. Uh, they do play uh, Hello Space Boy from outside. Um, and uh, I mean, they, they play Let's Dance. I mean, it's all it, it is one of the most like best of Bowie Bowie performances. It's, it's, it's quite good. He's into it. He changes his outfit about four or five times. So it, it's it's definitely a production, um, and uh, the band's on fire on it. It's it's, it's a it's a pretty good performance. I, I understand why it's considered one of the best. That's really cool. Yeah, I think that 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 balance of the old and the new he kept for the rest of the tours. I think of which there was only two or three big tours after this. Um, I really like his long hair in this performance he didn't have long hair often no it was long and then he had these sideburns that went down like down like almost connecting to his chin they were like big old big old burns yeah this is a handsome fellow right to the end that bowie even even in his i mean he he could rock a soul patch and frosted tips better than i ever could so good for him (laughs) (laughs) all right so let's Pretend to roll the dice because we all know where we're going. I mean, I think there's only one album left. That's but true. Sure. Still sure. roll the die. Hey, it's a one. Hey. It landed on 1977, which is the album Heroes, but also that year. Uh, Bowie was behind the board with his good old friend Jim, otherwise known as Iggy Pop, 
for the album Lust for Life. And as we do here, we will be covering both. First, an a B-side, Iggy Pop's Lust for Life, and then we go out with a bang with David Bowie's album Heroes. Very exciting. Very glad it all worked out that way. Uh, there's a lot of injustice in the world, but thankfully, somehow, we weren't... Our, our last discussion was not about ours. Um, <laughs> and our last discussion won't be about heroes. We'll probably do a, an episode after that similar to our last Nine Inch Nails episode. Who knows? Um, but I am very excited to talk about Lust for Life. That'll be a fun discussion. And heroes, of course. I am looking forward to both of those. And, uh, yeah, this this child better arrive soon. And I've got a little crib next to me in my little office here, which is a closet. And I, I don't see why I can't just, you know, make sure that it's eating whatever the frozen breast milk my wife gives me and recording podcasts. So we shouldn't be slowed down by this kid. We'll see. Sure. Or we'll be back and Steve will only want to talk about uh, Phil Collins albums, which is fine. That's season well, three. That's... Let's not get it ahead of ourselves. No jacket required. Exactly. It'll be no potted, no pod required. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I can't wait for those B sides. I mean, we're gonna, so we're gonna have Phil Collins will be the primary, sure. and um, of course we're gonna do uh, only the Phil Collins Genesis, not even the the, the Peter Gabriel stuff. Yeah. Oh. and um, Tarzan. Tarzan soundtrack, yeah. and of course the Brother Bear soundtrack. Yeah, Tarzan soundtrack. Forget the Brother Bear soundtrack. And there's that weird that there's that weird connection that he has to Paul Simon, which somehow I'm gonna be able to make it all connect so we can finally properly cover wait what's that hold on a second you guys hear that in the middle of the night i go walking in my sleep through the jungle oh yeah no there's definitely a through line there that gets us to billy joel's river of dreams (laughs) (laughs) oh yes of course um so thank you for spending two hours with us as we talk about the album hours and uh as always we hope that we brought you closer to pod our Oh, my God. The Nomads. The Nomads. The Nomads.